This is Our American Stories. And no matter how many times we've heard the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey teams, still all too amazing to believe heroics at Lake Placid in 1980, we want to hear it all over again. This adventure seems even more unlikely now than it felt decades ago. Whether this is your first or most recent time hearing the story, we promise to raise the requisite lumps in the requisite throats, adding new details to an all-too-familiar picture. It was more than a hockey game. It was us against them. It was freedom versus communism. Nobody gave us a hope in Halloween. It was a sliver of the Cold War played out on a sheet of ice. Here you have a bunch of fresh-faced college kids taking on the big, bad Soviet bear in the United States, in the Olympics. The confluence of events was so extraordinary, it can never happen again. Nobody paid attention to what Americans said in the world anymore. Our hostages had been taken, and we couldn't get them back. The Red Army went into Afghanistan. We couldn't get them out. It might have been the all-time low point for American public self-esteem. Who knew that these kids would become the vehicle for making people feel excited and proud again to wave a flag? It was a miracle. David slew Goliath. It was the greatest sports moment of the 20th century. No one could know how important one game could possibly be to a nation that seemed to be losing its way. Certainly not in 1979, when a weary America heard from its embattled leader who told us we were a nation in crisis. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. President Carter was seen as a, an expression of the American self-doubt and lack of self-confidence of the mid-70s. Here's Vice President under Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale. Our public support was eroding rapidly. You could feel it when you're out with people, when you're giving speeches, when you're shaking hands. America, I think, had begun to wonder whether we'd lost our edge. In the 20 years since winning the gold medal at the 1960 Olympics, American teams had become increasingly unable to compete with the dominant Europeans, especially the Soviet Union, whose players were amateurs in name only. The goal was to avoid being embarrassed at home, so in July of 1979, the best amateur players in the country were invited to try out for the 1980 Olympic team. They invited us all to Colorado Springs and they divided us up into four teams. Basically, Eastern guys, Michigan guys, Minnesota guys, and an at-large team. Over the course of 10 days in Colorado Springs, those four teams played a round robin. It was a nerve-wracking situation. It was a pressure-packed situation. And as that tournament went on, it was being evaluated by Herb Brooks. Minnesota native Herb Brooks never went to charm school. He was abrasive and intense. He was also the best college hockey coach in the country at the University of Minnesota. People were a little afraid of him. He'd always been considered kind of an outsider, had his own way of thinking, his own way of doing things. 
and he already had a history with the Olympic team. As a University of Minnesota player, Brooks thought he had made the team in 1960. He was even in the team picture. But at the last minute, Coach Jack Riley added a new player to the roster, and someone had to go. The someone was Herb Brooks, cut just one day before the team left for the games. A crushed Herb Brooks immediately called his father to vent. So I called and said, Dad, this whole thing is bullshit. Eastern coach halls, fixed all politics, and I went through the whole thing. And finally, my father said, you're done? I said, yeah. I said, well, I keep your bleeping, keep your mouth shut. I heard enough of that. You get back and thank the coach, get your ass in the locker room, wish your teammates well, and get your ass home. That was my father, God rest his soul. I said, yes, sir. So I came home, I'm watching this thing unfold. The Americans got hot, and they won our country's first gold medal. I'm watching this thing on TV. My father looked over at me, he says, looks like the coach cut the right guy, didn't he? Just bang. That left unfinished business in Herb Brooks's life. He had something to prove. He was on a mission. A mission to shake American hockey out of its slumber. First, Brooks had to trim the roster from 80 to 26. Tough part would be getting it down to 20 before the opening ceremonies. Behind the Iron Curtain, the Soviets were the best hockey team in the world, perhaps the strongest ever assembled, and everybody knew it. Vladislav Tridiak grew up outside Moscow and became immersed in the Soviets' communist sports machine at a young age. He developed into perhaps the greatest goaltender to ever play and starred on the Soviet national team for over 15 years. Vladislav Tridiak. You score on Tridiak, keep the puck. It doesn't happen often. By 1980, Boris Mikhailov was already a 10-year veteran of the Soviet national team and the most recognizable face in international hockey. Here's Boris Mikhailov. Sport was tied with politics, and any victory had big political undertones, especially during the Olympic Games, when the general secretary and everybody else was worried about how we would represent our country. Our task was only to place first. They were government-sponsored magicians on ice. The goal was to win for the motherland, and to show the world that Karl Marx had it right. They played hockey the way we played basketball, with the same kind of control of the puck, the same kind of intricate offensive patterns, and of course the presence and goal of Tretiak. How could you beat him? Back in the U.S., Herb Brooks had been contemplating that same question for years. After all, how many times does one have to get hit with the same hammer and sickle before they learn. We, uh, we also need to change the way we play the game. North American hockey had forever been a very linear, dump-and-chase style of hockey, unlike the Soviets and Europeans, who played an artistic, very free-flowing system built on finesse, speed, conditioning, and overlapping movements. Most of all, team chemistry. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. And when we come back, the miracle on the ice in 1980, the 1980 Olympic Games, when we continue.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's 1980 performance. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. I tried to develop a team that would throw their game right back at them. But first, Brooks would have to get his players to start thinking as a team, which wouldn't be easy. How's it looking? A lot of guys from Minnesota and Boston. Let's go! The rivalry between the University of Minnesota and Boston University was one of the fiercest in all of college hockey. Well, how about it, boys? Look like hockey to you? You want to settle old scores, you're on the wrong team. As much as I was a Boston hockey player and I had pride in my roots as a Boston hockey player, I had an enemy, and my enemy was the University of Minnesota. And the Boston guys, you know, we thought we were pretty savvy, and you know, there were guys that didn't lock their doors or left their wallets out in plain sight. We thought, you know, these guys are a bunch of hicks from the cow pastures. I wanted to blur the, the boundaries of our country, build a we and an us and ourselves as opposed to an I, me, myself. Our spirit was going to be a big asset. And you can't have that type of thing if you have pockets of individuals and that there's not those team-building exercises throughout the year. To fill the most important role, Brooks picked 22-year-old Boston University goaltender Jim Craig, the man who would backstop history. You know, people I speak to say Craig's game has been off since his mom died. <laughs> they were seeing when his game's on. Craig was recovering from the recent death of his mother, Margaret, to cancer. Starting in August of 79, Brooks began employing his main team-building exercise, beginning a rugged six-month pre-Olympic training program with a strategy. You know, maybe if they hate him, they won't have time to hate each other. To bond them as a team, his players needed one common enemy. I'll be your coach. Him. I won't be your friend if you need one of those. I remember when he told us, I'll be a coach, but I won't be a friend. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be a long year. He quoted in the paper that I had a million dollar set of legs and a 10 cent fart for a brain. He'd give you that glare and that look, and it's like, oh my God, what did I do wrong now? I can honestly say that uh, there was no sense of regionalism on that team. There was a sense of Herbieism. Thank you. Brooks didn't just put up a wall between himself and the team. He threw in a moat and alligators too. I need you to stick tight with these kids. One of the first things Herb told his assistant coach, Craig Patrick, was, I'm going to be tough on them, and you are going to have to be the one who keeps everyone together. Okay. It was an elaborate and flawlessly constructed game of good cop, bad cop. He would later call it his loneliest year in hockey. Here's Coach Brooks. A lot of these guys being college All-Americans, they were never pushed like that, never pulled. And I wasn't trying to put greatness into anybody. I was trying to pull it out, pull it out way up here. And I don't like coaches that try to put it in because they think they've got all the answers. But you got to believe in them, uh, have high standards uh, of them, and pull it out. And my favorite coach, John Wooden right here, I think he would concur with that. As September arrived, it was time to start playing against future Olympic competition. So Brooks took the team to Europe for a series of exhibition games. Before a game against Norway, a team they would have to face at the Olympics, he issued a challenge. I said, guys, we're going to have to play the Norwegians in qualifications. So we do it tonight. We send a message right now. But playing flat and uninspired hockey, the U.S. could only muster a 3-3 tie against a team they should have trounced. 
Brooks was furious. You guys don't want to work during the game? No problem. We'll work now. Go line. He's standing there with his suit on. And he makes us all get behind the net and on the goal line. And he starts blowing his whistle. And we did what are called herbies, which are blue line back, red line back, far blue line back, all the way down and back. Think you can win on talent alone? Gentlemen, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. Again. Two or three of those would be tiring. Blue line back, red line back, blue line back, down and back. Ten or twelve of them would be excessive. You better think about something else, each and every one of you. When you pull on that jersey, you represent yourself and your teammates. And a name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. Get that through your head. Again. And we did them for about 45 minutes to an hour. The rink attendant turned the lights off on us, and we still skated in the dark. In the dark, he's screaming at us. Booming voice around this empty arena. How about it, Silky? You gonna be the first one to quit on me? It was pretty intense. The message went out right then. They're not gonna play the game like that and disgrace their abilities or our collective efforts. That moment probably had more to do with us gelling as a team, feeling like we were a group, a family. We looked at each other and said, you know, basically he can do anything he wants to us. He's not going to break us. The following night, the teams played again. The United States won 9-0. to zero. But there were still six cuts to be made, and Brooks was making it clear that no one was safe. Not even the team captain. You better start putting the puck in the net, Rizzo, or you're not going anywhere. Here's team captain Mike Arruzzioni. Two weeks before the Olympic Games, he calls me in. He's going to cut me from the team. You're not good enough. You shouldn't be here. I never should have taken you. I'm going to send you back. Don't think I won't do it. And I'm thinking, he might just do this. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow. The word got down that Arruzzioni's job was in jeopardy. So everyone said, if he'll cut the captain, where do I stand? Which is exactly what Brooks wanted. Timmy! What's he doing here? Hey, you guys know you? Turning the screws even tighter, he brought in new players for tryouts just weeks before the Olympics, provoking the same fear in his players that Brooks himself experienced in 1960 when he was cut from the Olympic team at the last minute. But this was a new generation of player, and they'd had enough. Assistant coach Craig Patrick approached Brooks on the team bus. Herb, some of the boys want to have a word. Here's defenseman. Jack O'Callaghan. And I said, you know, Herb, I don't think you should do it. I think it's wrong. We're going to Lake Placid in a week. I mean, stop it. Get rid of these guys and let us get serious about this. And I was looking for that moment where their cohesiveness and strength of association was such a strong bond. And then I would just cut the cord. And that was the moment. Brooks sent the late additions back home. He trimmed the roster to 20 and kept his captain. Kurt never did anything on a whim. He planned, and I think he felt like that maybe this was the last test to see how close these players really are. Twelve Olympic team members were from Minnesota, four were from Boston, and two apiece were from Wisconsin and Michigan. Yeah. But just days before the Olympics, the Americans had one more yeah, test to take. Well, I still don't know why you scheduled this, Herb, but get your guys to New York. They've got a game to play. On February 9th, 1980, at Madison Square Garden in New York City, 
they skated onto the ice to play an exhibition game just three days before the start of the Olympics. But to their opponents on this night, it wasn't just an exhibition. The Soviets had just recently embarrassed the NHL All-Stars, the best of the best, defeating them six to nothing. But before the game, Brooks told his team to go out and have fun. Have fun? Brooks himself later described the Garden game as a ploy. He said, what could possibly be gained by playing the Soviets tough and waking them up? We got crushed and we thought, these guys are in another world. They just kicked us around that rink. The goals they scored were, you could have filmed them, they were so beautiful. They were like robots. When they scored a goal, they never smiled. I don't think I ever saw them smile. We were about ready to stand up and applaud him because we didn't see anything like that before. You know, guys hitting now, but you see that goal? Did you see his move? It's like, we were spectators. I looked up at the scoreboard. It said 10 to 3. It might as well have said 20 to nothing. 10-3 made it sound closer than it was. It was no contest. There couldn't have been a greater low point given the preparation and the, and the work that we had put in. It was very demoralizing. As each team left New York City and headed five and a half hours north to Lake Placid, their future seemed clear. Here's ABC's 1980 Olympic hockey announcer, Al Michaels. Anybody who left Madison Square Garden that day thought to themselves, the Soviets will win every game in the Olympics, take home the gold medal, and never be challenged. And the U.S., all you knew is that when it came time to face the big bear, they had no chance. As discouraging as the loss to the Soviets was, it was not something on the minds of Americans. Throughout 1979, as the hockey team was preparing to compete in the Olympics, Americans at large were also competing with the harsh realities of everyday life. Here again is Michael Ruzioni. Look at the economy. Look how much money we're paying for gas. Inflation was absolutely ridiculous. People just didn't feel good about the United States. A lot of people wondered where we were headed. And more on this great story from Lake Placid, New York, 1980, our Olympic hockey team. The story continues after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's miracle on ice in Lake Placid in 1980. And then, in November, just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse... This is NBC Nightly News. They did. With Jessica Savage. Good evening. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy and took dozens of American hostages. On November 4th, which was a really rainy day, a hundred or so Iranian students climbed over the walls of the U.S. Embassy, yelling, Magbar America, death to America. In a few seconds, uh, the door was knocked down and Iranians with automatic weapons uh, stood right in front of me and uh, held them against my head. 
this morning for the first time. Barry Rosen and 51 other Americans would be held hostage in Iran for the next 444 days. They would come into our cells and hold us up against the wall and use an automatic weapon and count from 10 to 1 just to scare us. Iran's Ayatollah taunted and mocked President Jimmy Carter. Carter tries to frighten us on the economic front. He does not have the military courage to attack us. It was a constant nightly embarrassment to all Americans to see our influence in the world seemingly ebbing away. Every night on the evening news they'd burn an American flag for us. We were not feeling very good about ourselves. In December, it would get even worse. Day 54 in Iran, and while there has been no significant change in the hostage situation, there has been a major development in the country next door to Iran, Afghanistan. During the last three days, more than 5,000 Soviet combat troops have been airlifted into Kabul. Up to another 50,000 Soviet troops have massed along Afghanistan's northern border. As one administration official said privately, this is the grossest piece of international behavior in some time period after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was uh, one of the tensest periods of the entire Cold War. It was always a potentially dangerous situation that if it ever had gotten out of control would have meant the end of the world as we knew it. It's very important for the world to realize how serious a threat the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is. The Cold War was getting colder by the day and with the Soviets on American soil they were encouraged to see the American press blaming America for the world's woes. Newspapers were full of articles like blaming Americans for everything. So an attitude for the entire Olympic team, let's show them who we are. Let's show them who are the greatest. Let's show them who are the strongest. And let's show them on their soil. The Winter Olympics began on February 12, 1980. No one was expecting a showdown between the Americans and the Soviets, not even the team captain. Here again is Mike Arruzzioni. I know you guys are really facing a Herculean task here. Uh, it's like sending you into the lion's cage. Do you feel like that? Uh, yes, we do. You know, you got to be realistic about things. We're, we're a young team. We're the youngest Olympic hockey team ever. If you had to pick us, I think it would probably be picked fifth. The Soviets blew out their first two opponents with a combined score of 33 to 4. The seventh seeded Americans opened against the heavily favored Sweden and trailed 2 to 1 late in the final third period. Here again is Al Michaels. I remember the U.S. had several opportunities to tie the game and you just got the feeling and of course as the clock ticks down and now you're under a minute, well it's, it's not to be. With only 41 seconds to go, Brooks pulled goalie Jim Craig, which allowed him to put an extra skater on the ice. But in return, it also left the American net empty. It was a desperate move for a desperate team. He's just trying to get on net. And I couldn't believe it when it went in, you know. You can always wonder if Billy doesn't score, what happens to the hockey team? Well, Billy did score. And the Americans in the key game in the first round tie it up. That was the biggest goal of the Olympics because if the Americans lose that game, they're virtually out of contention before the Olympic Games start. Two days later, the Americans faced Czechoslovakia. 
underdogs again in a game they had to win. Many people said that the Czechs were considered the second best team in the world and the only team that had a chance to beat the Soviets. Well, we pretty much dominated the Czechs. Then late in the third period, as the Americans were skating to a 7-3 Valentine's Day massacre victory against the second best team in the world, Mark Johnson, the team's star player, was knocked to the ice from a cheap shot by a Czech player. As Johnson lay in the middle of the ice, Americans watching on television were introduced to Herb Brooks, up close and personal. I'm going to take this stick and I'm going to stuff it down your throat. People were ready to hear that kind of thing. He would not have sat back and let the Ayatollah stomp all over the U.S. while holding a bunch of hostages. I think that was one of the moments where a lot of people in this country said, hey, they've got a pretty good little story taking place here. We have these fresh-faced kids, got to keep an eye on these guys. And look at this coach. I mean, he's right there, backing his players. So everybody's starting to look ahead to this prospective matchup against the Soviets. But before that, you have three other games. Norway figured to be the easiest of the games, and it was. There is Pavlich who gets it back to Selk, who scores! Davy Selk from Mark Pavlich. Then you had Romania. Prescott, he scores! And they won that game. Germany presented a little bit of a problem, though, on, on Wednesday night, the last game prior to going into the medal round. Germany leads 2-0. So wait a second, what's going on here? You, you don't want this bump in the road. You don't want it now. And then the U.S. was able to come from behind and beat Germany. So they did all of the things they had to do. But then, of course, you had the specter of the, the Soviets just looming there. Seemingly no one, certainly not a bunch of college kids, could stop them from winning the gold medal. Herb Brooks, after all, wasn't coaching a dream team. He was coaching a team full of dreamers. There's a big difference. Today, the concept of amateurs in the Olympics is as obsolete as eight-track cassettes. The expression dream team has become part of the five-ring lexicon. Herb Brooks would later see the dream team as ironic because when you have dream teams, you seldom get to dream. But this was a game of striking contrasts. It was experience versus youth, men versus boys, champions versus upstarts, communism versus capitalism, all on a sheet of ice in the Adirondack Mountains. After studying the Soviets for years, Herb Brooks could sense their overconfidence and told his team to take advantage of it. I kept wetting their appetite. Someone will beat those guys. Someone's going to beat those guys. I don't like how they're playing. They think they're better than they are. Brooks also thought his team was giving too much respect to the Soviets. So he began chipping away at their mystique by poking fun at their leader, one of the top players in the world, who just happened to look a lot like a famous comedian. 
Boris Mikhailov was as close to, I mean, the hockey chief of the world as there was. And Herbie starts teasing the guy all week. Look at that guy's nose. God, look at that guy's face. Looks like Stan Laurel. And he's insulting the guy. Ha ha ha. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. Piece of cake, guys. And when we come back, our final segment, the miracle in Lake Placid in 1980. The U.S. Olympic hockey team, their story continues here on Our American Stories. stories and we continue with our final segment in this hour-long celebration of the United States Olympic hockey team's remarkable performance in Lake Placid in 1980. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake guys. To relax them, to keep them focused and also plan and say hey someone's gonna beat those son of a guns. Then on Friday, February 22nd, the Cold War was put on ice. The 13th Winter Olympic Games. The excitement, the tension building, the Olympic Center filling to capacity. In the locker room before the game, Herb Brooks gave the speech of his life. You were born to be hockey players. He told us we were born to be a player. You were meant, we were meant to be, be here. here. This moment was ours. This is your time. And he told that story about going up and spitting in the eye of the tiger. If this is our time, this it's not their time. It's your time. Screw them, Stan Laurel, all those Russians. Now go out there and take it. It's our turn. And I remember a telegram we got from a lady in Texas. And all the telegram said was beat those commie You realized that the USA on the front of your sweater meant that you were playing One, for your two, country. Three, USA! Here we go as the game is underway. The Soviet Union in red and the United States in white. I remember for the first five or six minutes, feeling as though I couldn't feel my feet on the ice. The Soviets struck first. And it was deflected in. And the Soviet Union leads one to nothing at the 9-12 mark of the first period. The Russians scored first, and you winced and thought, here it comes. But the U.S. team took that blow. Craig made some key saves. And then Buzzy Schneider came down the left wing. up ahead to Schneider. The tying goal failed to unnerve the Soviets. They quickly scored again, and it looked like the first period would end with them leading 2-1. to one. But with just seconds remaining, the methodical team that almost never made mistakes made the worst kind, a mental error, and it changed the course of the game. David Christian has the puck. It's about five seconds left to go in the period. I stopped to skate to the bench thinking the period's over. I remember seeing Mark Johnson go scooting up. Like, he just didn't stop playing. He was still playing. The Russians had stopped. That made it one to nothing. Long shot, the easy save by Trediak, but Johnson is there and scores with one second to play in the period. Right now, the, the 
The Soviets aimed to fix that mistake in the second period, quickly scoring the go-ahead goal. They dominated the action, outshooting the Americans 11-2 in the second period. Only Jim Craig's brilliance and goal prevented the game from becoming a blowout. But the Americans had never come from behind the best team in the world. And the Soviets always dominated the third and final period. It looked as if this night would be no different. That is, until lightning struck. Just 81 seconds later, the team's captain, whose name in Italian means eruption, triggered one. That's when the building went crazy. I mean, that's when sound had feel. I mean, that was like an earthquake. Now we've got Bedlam. Oh, I love Brooks' reaction. Here it is again. The atmosphere in that arena was incredible. The, the feeling, the sense that they could do this, that they could actually pull it off. That goal coming at the 10-minute mark, exactly halfway through the period. When I sat on, I looked up and I went, 10 minutes. That's a long time against these guys. They could score in 10 minutes what would take us 60 minutes to score, and I knew that. Too much time, too much time. We can't hold them off this long. It was just a constant clock watch, shift by shift, shift by shift. Eight and a half minutes to play. The Americans now leading 4-3. It went on forever. The time just stood still. Five and a half minutes to play. 3.53 remaining in the game. 2.25, 2.24, 2.23 remaining. It kept building and building, and the clock kept winding down, and it just got louder and louder. 55 seconds, but Mikhailov has the puck. 28 seconds, the crowd going insane. Carlemont. McClanahan is there, the puck is still loose. 11 seconds, you've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Silk. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! The entire U.S. bench cleared. Everyone except Coach Brooks. After throwing both arms overhead and doing a tiny pirouette and punching the air with an emphatic left fist, he walked straight off the bench, turned right into the runway, got patted on the back by Weepy State Troopers, and went back into locker room five. Herb Brooks locked himself inside an orange toilet stall and cried. Once the team made it into the locker room, they broke into a spontaneous chorus of God Bless America, filling in the words they couldn't remember with hums and whistles. In Lake Placid and all over the United States, the victory triggered an outpouring of national emotion never before provoked by a sporting event. On the Iron Range in Minnesota, people ran outside and hollered and shot off guns. In the Mediterranean Sea, the USS Nimitz one of the world's largest supercarriers flashed the score to a Soviet intelligence ship that was nearby. The Soviets would not lose again for five years, and the Americans would not beat them for another 11 years. But the future domination came with no rewind mechanism, no clause that could undo what happened on Friday night, February 22, 1980. It was the 13th anniversary of the film debut of Walt Disney's Cinderella, Maybe it figured. The nation continued celebrating, but for the hockey team, it wasn't over yet. People always forget that the U.S. had to win another game on Sunday. It was still possible 
If the Americans did not beat the Finns, that they would not only not win the gold, they wouldn't win any medal at all. And Herb understood this. And we were excited, we were anxious, we couldn't wait to get out and play. And Herb Brooks walked into the locker room, and he looked at us and he said, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your grave. Then he stopped, he walked a couple of steps, turned, looked at us again, and said, you grave. Once again, the Americans would have to come from behind. And we went out there in the third period, and I think we just steamrolled them from the time they opened that door and let us out. They didn't have a chance. Johnson, to McClellan, and he scores! Three unanswered goals in the third period gave the U.S. a 4-2 win and the gold medal. broke Herb Brooks' heart in 1960 and made him the most celebrated American hockey coach in history two decades later. But on August 11, 2003, in a single car accident, a little bit of the Lake Placid miracle died with Herbert Paul Brooks on the hot, hard asphalt of Interstate 35 in Forest Lake, Minnesota. As his casket descended down the steps of Assumption Catholic Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, it passed under a curved canopy of hockey sticks raised up by his 1980 gold medal team. Many of those holding sticks were fighting tears and losing the fight. If Herb Brooks' passing reminds us that human beings have a shelf life, it also reminds us that miracles do not. And this miracle didn't happen on accident. I see Neil Broughton skating on a flooded rink in Roseau, Minnesota, that his father got up at 2 a.m. to make in 25 degree below zero weather. I see John Harrington's late father Charles skipping overtime at work to watch his kids' games because his overtime would always be there, but the games would not. And then see him years later listening to John skate against the Russians from the cab of his locomotive. I envision Margaret Craig running her goaltender son and all her other kids all over southeastern Massachusetts, a devotion that was absolutely unstinting until her cigarette habit caught up to her and cancer arrived. Behind every player, there are stories of love and sacrifice and struggle. Life is hard and Olympic gold medals provide no exemption. You push on, do your best, and if you are really brave, you dream big, doubts and fears be damned. This is the stuff that miracles are made of, and the proof was there to see on February 22nd, 1980. And great job on that as always, Greg, and I'll never forget that day. If you were around, you didn't either. You knew where you were. There are some events where you just remember where you were. And I was at Paul Biatini's house, co-captain of my team, one of my dearest friends, Died in the World Trade Center, visiting an insurance company on the 100th floor. And what a day that was. The celebration everywhere. And we weren't hockey fans. There had to be 35 to 40 of us at the Biatinis. We all got called in through the quarters. We were calling each other's houses. And then we all got together for that final period. Not a quarter. Clearly, I'm not a hockey fan. But in the third period, everybody gathered at the Biatinis for the final round. This is Lee Habib. A great hockey story, the greatest hockey story here on Our American Stories, the 1980 
dream team, the real dream team, the U.S. Olympic hockey team. And this is Our American Stories, and we chat with authors of all sorts, and well, all kinds of books here too. And today, we're joined by Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section, and the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. And Sam, look, there's no better way to start a bar fight than to pick the greatest teams in the world. I mean, that's really hard. And also, you could have a bar fight Deciding what's a sport, what's a team. Talk about both of those things. And was it hard or was it easy? Because something's telling me it's pretty hard. I thought it would be easy. You know, I had those arguments at the bar and, you know, they always ended in just someone storming out because it was impossible to answer. And what I realized was that there's really no set criteria for how we define greatness. And no one had really done a rigorous study or tried to actually nail it down. So that was the, one of the toughest things I I had to do at the beginning was define greatness. And in the end, what I decided was that we have to be a little more specific about what a team is. A team has to have a certain number of people. It can't be two people. That's more of a partnership. I finally decided that five, five people was really the point at which group contributions and group chemistry was more important than individual performance. So basketball was really the smallest sport that I studied. I had another set of questions, which was, how do you define greatness? And, you know, for me, one of the problems is when people talk about great teams, there's no real set period of time that we apply to it. A lot of people talk about teams that were great in one season or had an incredible undefeated season. But what I really wanted to study, what I realized was important is teams that had sustained their dominance for a long time. Because I think any team can get lucky. They can win a championship in one season or two seasons. But Really, to rule out luck completely and to talk about culture and chemistry, then you really had to set the bar at four years. And let's talk about some competing theories that are out there, because the name of your book is The Captain Class. Some people think it's the coaches. Some people think it's the management. Some people think it's that superstar player or the team of players. What led you to this categorization and your choice to study the captains? I was completely shocked. I, I had all of the same assumptions that I think everyone does. When I finally identified these teams, and that took years and years of work. I mean, I, I went through 25,000 teams, the entire history of sports since the 1880s, all over the world, and I got down to 17 of them. And, you know, the first thing I looked at was talent, right? I thought talent would be the thing. And, you know, but I quickly realized that some of these teams, you know, they all were talented, but some of them had 
talent that was clearly average or even mediocre in some cases. So it wasn't that. The second thing I thought was coaching. You know, it's got to be coaching. But to my great surprise, there wasn't a pattern there. I'm not saying coaching isn't important, but some of these teams had more than one coach. You know, they changed coaches. Or, you know, some of them didn't even have coaches or had coaches who really didn't take an active role. And in fact, only one of them had a coach who was considered a great coach when their run of dominance began. So that wasn't the magic bullet I was looking for. I also looked at things like tactics. You know, I thought maybe they just had incredible, brilliant strategies that stood out above the rest. But again, you know, only a handful of them could say that. So that wasn't a pattern either. It didn't have anything to do with organization or even management at the higher levels. The only thing that they all had in common, and it was slap your forehead obvious. I mean, it was just so plain as day when I looked at it was that these runs of greatness, these long streaks of dominance, they always corresponded almost precisely to the arrival and departure of one player. And that player in every single case was the leader of the team or the captain. And let's take a deep dive into your captain theory with the first captain I want to talk about and this great American sports franchise called the Boston Celtics. Bill Russell, who was he? Bill Russell is, in my mind, the greatest team leader in sports history. And what that team accomplished, I've never seen anything the likes of it. I mean, they won 11 NBA championships in 13 seasons. And people forget that. We talk about the, the Bulls, Michael Jordan, and the, the Warriors today, and LeBron James. You know, but what we don't see is that incredible consistency. The whole notion of a team that has won 10 NBA titles and yet is still hungry to win an 11th is kind of incredible. And they pulled it off year after year. And now, again, that streak began and ended with Bill Russell. It started his rookie season when they won their first championship. And the Celtics had never won a title before, ever. And the year he retired was the last championship of the streak. And the, the following season, they, they didn't even make it to 500 and didn't make the playoffs. It took many more years for them to return to glory. So this was completely bracketed by Bill Russell. And I want to make the point very clearly that I'm not saying that all you need is a great captain to have a great team. I mean, you need a lot of things. A lot of things have to work. But to me, the captain is really like the verb in a sentence. You know, the adjectives, the nouns. You know, the punctuation, all these other things might be more interesting, more memorable. But without the verb, it's not a sentence. It doesn't work together. And that's kind of the role these captains played in bringing these elements together. And Russell was such a great example because Russell was absolutely on the court completely strange. He was a big man who did not score, which was very unusual for the day. And, you know, back then, defenders weren't supposed to leave their feet, you know, but he would fly through the air and block shots and, he played this ferocious brand of defense. It was completely relentless. You know, no one had ever seen anything like that, and his numbers were, were not startling, so people didn't understand it. And you know, off the court, too, he was strange. I mean, he didn't care about endorsements. He didn't sign autographs. He was very prickly with the press and, and didn't really seem to care much about the fans or being a role model or anything that we associate with, with leadership. You know, in fact, he, he turned down the Hall of Fame you know, when he was inducted. He said he just didn't want any part of it. People thought he was an oddball, but really what they didn't understand was that all he cared about was the collective accomplishments of the team and all his effort, everything went inside that team. And inside the team, his teammates loved him, you know, and everything about him, they understood him completely and they would do anything for him. And 
on the court, you know, he understood that, you know, what the team didn't need was someone pouring in uh, baskets and getting in the highlight reel. They needed someone who would do all the unglamorous grunt work, every dirty job that needed to be done in order to help the team win. And that was his role. So he's just the epitome of great leadership. And he was misunderstood in his time. And, you know, I think only today we're really starting to understand the full dimensions of what he brought to that team. And anyone who was around during that day knows who Bill Russell was. By the way, he played at the University of San Francisco and took them straight to a college championship as well. When we come back, more with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. This is Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we're back with Sam Walker, the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. We were just talking about Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics, and Sam, you began the book with the words of this legendary captain, quote, my ego demands for myself the success of my team. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's such a great encapsulation of what you need to be if you want to be a great leader and, uh, you know, all the different ways that you need to think about your role and how much you need to, how hard you need to work and how much of yourself you need to just forget about. You you really need to kind of give yourself over completely to to the goals of of the group. And that's something that we're not trained to do. Business schools aren't teaching people to do that. Selflessness and self-sacrifice aren't generally words people use for most CEOs in America. We can, we can say that safely, Sam. Talk about the Coleman play, because one of the things about Bill Russell, and we're going to learn this more about some of these other captains, is this word called desire. And my goodness, anybody who played around Bill Russell understood what that word meant. So this is one of my favorite stories because I think it it shows one of the characteristics that we all kind of know is important, but that we don't really understand why it's important. And that is relentlessness. And Bill Russell was relentless. I mean, to an extreme, he would get sick before every game that he played even meaningless games. He would throw up in the locker room. And in fact, if he didn't throw up, his teammates would say, Russ, you go throw up. Like, what's wrong with you? Uh, because he he cared so much. But the Coleman play was a perfect example of why this matters. Now, this happened in in his rookie season, and they made it to the NBA Finals in a Game 7 against the St. Louis Hawks. And this was one of the first Game 7s, and it was just a huge event with incredible pressure, and Russell was a rookie. Now, late in the game, uh, Boston had a one-point lead. It was about a minute left. And Boston got a rebound, and Russell charged down the court, and he tried to dunk the ball missed up his timing, he missed, and St. Louis got the rebound. And now St. Louis, a forward named Jack Coleman, had been sort of hanging back behind the play, and they quickly inbounded the ball to him at at midcourt. Now, he's at midcourt with the ball and a running start. Now, Russell, who had missed that dunk, where was he? He was underneath his own basket, off the court, on the other side. 
he was about 96 feet from the basket, and Coleman was probably about 45 feet with a running start. But when Coleman came to the rim and to make a layup, now this is late in the game. They would have taken a lead. It might have been the end. This blur appeared behind him and swatted the ball away, and it was Russell. And he had somehow covered twice the distance that Coleman had in the same amount of time. I mean, nobody on uh, in that arena would have thought he had a chance. And he certainly must not have even known himself. But just that raw desire that he demonstrated over and over again in competition. The thing about it is that was consistent for him. And what we don't understand is that studies have shown that relentlessness is highly contagious. You know, if a group of people that's doing something together, thinks that one person in that group is giving 100% effort, a real maximum effort, all of them will raise their own performance. If you have someone in your midst like that who is relentless and committed to playing at all times at 100%, they're going to be serious marginal gains that you will, you will see in your teamwork. And that's just not something we can quantify. So it's not something that we teach, but I think it's about time we started. We've all been around people who have that kind of drive and focus and what it does to our game. We raise our game. We raise the bar. And when those people aren't present, we don't even know where the bar is. Right. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's funny because there are some emotions that are contagious inside a group and relentlessness is contagious always in a good way. Toughness is always contagious in a good way. If you show toughness and perseverance, others will too. And Another one is emotional control, which is something all these leaders had. They had the ability to overcome really difficult personal circumstances and not just compete well, but compete at a higher level than ever. And Tom Brady of the Patriots is a great example of this. You know, a couple of seasons ago after this whole deflate gate situation, you know, he served a suspension, but he came back and played one of his greatest seasons. But even after they won the Super Bowl and this incredible comeback against the Atlanta Falcons, we find out that his mother had been undergoing chemotherapy, you know, and had been diagnosed with cancer that season. So he was going through that and he never said a word about it. No one knew about it you know, because he had the control to put that away and to play as hard as he could when he was playing and deal with it separately. And- no doubt. And we're going to get to Brady in a little bit because it's such a fascinating chapter in your book. But let's talk about one more basketball player because I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. Tim Duncan of the San Antonio Spurs. Talk about Timmy Duncan. Who is he? He is a very unusual guy. He uh, was a great swimmer. I mean, really had uh, incredible talent, could have maybe even been an Olympic uh, swimmer. But, you know, the hurricane came in and destroyed the local pool. And about the same time, his mother passed away. And, you know, he had uh, these hard knocks. And, you know, he started picking up basketball and was very lightly recruited. In fact, Wake Forest was one of the only schools that really – took him seriously. He was a very skinny kid and just hadn't grown into his body. But, you know, he, he got there and really matured and became a really hot NBA prospect. But, you know, I don't think anyone really thought that, that he was going to become the, the star that he was or that he would develop his skills the way he did. But the thing that's fascinating about Tim, there's two things I think there's so much about him that is instructive for leaders. But I think the the most important thing really is the way he played. Now he had the talent to dominate the NBA in terms of scoring, you know, or any of the famous gaudiest statistics. But if you look at his totals, it's really amazing. Some, some years he was very prolific scorer. Some years it was not his blocks and rebounds and other things were, were off the charts. He would change his position on the court and play different positions depending on the makeup of the team. It just showed that he had the same quality that 
Russell had, which is that he he didn't care what his numbers were or what you thought of him or whether he got on the cover of a magazine. He only cared about the team winning, and he would do whatever grunt work needed to be done, and he would change his role to fit. But the thing about Tim Duncan that really everyone should study is the way he communicates. I was completely surprised when I looked at these captains because the first thing I thought the first way that you motivate a team is is with a speech. You give a big speech, right? You motivate them with words. And none of these captains gave speeches. I mean, they did not like to do it. Some of them purposely avoided it. And I did not understand this. I didn't understand how they communicated effectively with their team. I, thought, I went right to Duncan. Because if you've ever watched Tim Duncan give an interview, you know that he is not a charismatic guy. I mean, he sounds like he's getting a colonoscopy when he's answering questions. He just has no emotion. He's, he's monosyllabic, right? He doesn't come across as a charismatic person. So how does he communicate? Well, he talks a lot, but it's a different sort of communication. He's always working the room, talking individually to one person, one-on-one, with incredible intensity. He stares, uses his eye contact and gestures and touch to communicate very intensely with people. And he listens as much as he talks. He doesn't lecture, he listens. And he has these interactions all the time and he has them in the moment, especially when someone has done something wrong or needs uh, encouragement. That's when he springs into action. And what I realized that the Spurs talk more than any team I've ever seen. I mean, they're always talking on the floor, on the bench, constant communication. And this creates an atmosphere where everyone feels like they can contribute, they feel heard. And they also feel like they have to account for themselves. And all the problems that team had were addressed in the moment. Nothing ever festered. This talkative style that they had allowed them to address problems in the moment to move past them. And that's why they were so good for so long. That's why they made the playoffs in 19 consecutive seasons with an incredible revolving cast of players and won five championships and had the greatest long-term winning percentage in NBA history. It was because that that whole climate that Duncan created, you know, allowed them to slot new people in and got them uh, talking and solving problems. So even though they didn't always have the best talent or certainly not the most money, they were the most dominant team of, of their era in the NBA. And we're talking to Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And what a terrific series of stats for Tim Duncan, wherever you might put him in the pantheon of greats. 19 consecutive playoffs, five championships, and the best winning percentage in National Basketball Association history. And by the way, if you like what we do here on Our American Story, speaking of, well, at least trying to raise the bar and lead the dialogue, maybe be the captain of the class in storytelling, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. Five best stories each week, you'll get them. Also, please send the link to a friend. If you like what you're hearing, Please help us succeed in the market and in the marketplace of ideas and stories. We're working hard to get this out to the American people. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of hate. This show is always about, well, interesting, compelling, and good things. When we come back, Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class, here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And for anybody out there who's listening, leading anything, and anyone who's a sports fan, but even if you're not, what a great discussion. We were just talking about Tim Duncan, probably the highest paid person to ever have written an academic psychology paper. Because in college, Sam, he co-authored one titled Blowhards, Snobs, and Narcissists. Interpersonal Reactions to Excessive Egotism. In the opening paragraph is the line, quote, simply put, we don't like egotistical people. So even as an undergrad, Tim Duncan got it. It just shows you the level of intelligence and emotional intelligence that these great leaders had. I mean, I don't know. I think I think that my sense with Duncan, I've never spoken to him about this. I know he's very proud of the paper, but I think that really was who he was and that that research that he did really explained to him that who he was as a leader, he didn't look like a leader that you would, you would pick out of a crowd. I mean, his teammates always said, if you walked into practice, you would never imagine that he was the leader of the team because he didn't, he wasn't the loudest voice in the room. He wasn't a huge presence, a, a charismatic person who barked out orders. He didn't do any of the things leaders are supposed to do. What I found in my book and what I hope is inspiring in it to people is that, you know, you may not think that you have leadership characteristics. You may think that there are things that you just aren't good at, but really the, the truth is that all of the things that these leaders did were really about behavior and the choices that they made in the team context every day. And behavior can be modeled and leadership can be, can be uh, improved. Choices can be better. And when you start to understand what leadership really involves, and you start to separate out the myths, then um, you can see why someone like Tim Duncan may not be the guy on posters in every kid's bedroom, but he is by far the winningest and most effective leader of his generation. You know, his coach once said that Duncan didn't have an ounce of MTV in him. He even <laughs> agreed to be paid less than market value. Why did he do that? What was he thinking? I mean, his agent must have went, Timmy, what are you talking about? You want the maximum so I can get the maximum commission. What are you doing? You know, Tom Brady did the same thing with the Patriots. I mean, he would restructure his contract every year so that they could have more salary cap room to sign other players. I mean, it's that's what you do. He's made more money, I'm sure, than he ever imagined he would make in his life, and, and as most of these players have. And it's not an affectation. I mean, he cared about the team. And the team's result, that's where all his satisfaction came from. And it came much more than his satisfaction from having more money in the bank or having, you know, yet another supercar in his garage. I mean, that stuff didn't matter. And he's an incredible person. And, you know, I have so much respect for him. And I, I do think that there's a lot of appreciation for him. But he's often left out of the conversation when people talk about the greatest players of all time. And I just don't understand it. I don't understand this Hall of Fame mentality where, you know, we separate out an individual from his teammates and say this person deserves special praise. I don't understand how any – I think they knew that, that their – whatever their accomplishments were, were all dependent on other people, and that you can't really divide a team into its important parts and its less important parts. It's really all one unit. Indeed. I want to quote from the book. Because it's such a good quote, and it's something we all know and experience in any workplace. Quote, one of the great paradoxes of management is that the people who pursue leadership positions most ardently are often the wrong people for the job. You then cited a study of superstar CEOs and how, as they lift themselves up, they often lower others in the process. 
Tim Duncan and so many members of your captain class, they did the exact opposite. Talk about that. Well, my favorite example of this is a woman named Carla Overbeck. And I doubt that you immediately remember that name. She was the captain of that great 1999 U.S. women's soccer team that won the World Cup and you know, really dominated that sport for about five, six years. Just one of the best soccer teams of all time. And you remember Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Brandi Chastain, all the big stars of that team. But there's a reason you don't know Carla Overbeck, and it's because she did not care. She did not want you to know who she was. She had no interest in the spotlight whatsoever, any personal accolades. And she was not the best player on the team. She was a central defender, and you know, she never did anything flashy. She never scored. She you know, would, would pass the ball off the minute she got it to one of her teammates, and she, you know, she just played with this relentless pace. But what was amazing about her is that I think she understood what leadership is really about, and it's really about service. She was incredible with this because she did things I'd never seen before. When this team would go on a long road trip to Japan or Norway, they would get to their hotel and they'd be exhausted and they'd get a knock on the door and they'd open it up and it was Carla Overbeck who was carrying their bags from the bus to their rooms for them. Now, this is the captain of the team doing this. I asked one of her former coaches about this. I said, how is this leadership? How does this help her be a leader? And he said, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. Because Carla Overbeck would do these things on behalf of her teammates, and they understood that to her, all she cared about was the collective of the team. She did not care about herself. She would do anything for them. And this gave her a certain amount of currency, like a a bank account, that she could spend when she needed to. And she would spend it on the field because the minute that someone messed up or was not focused, she would be all over them or encouraging them when they did something great. And it meant something. Everyone understood who she was and what she was all about, and it had great power when she did it in competition. It made the team better. Let's talk about football now, and and two teams in particular. First, the 1970s Pittsburgh Steelers teams. Who is Jack Lambert, and why did you include him in this book? Most folks think of Terry Bradshaw when they think of that powerhouse Steelers team. Why was Jack Lambert the guy you focused on? But really the heart and soul of that team was his defense. I mean, it was an extraordinary, historically great defense. And that was really the uh, the unit that drove that team forward. And just look at the moment that Jack Lambert showed up. I mean, the Steelers had never won a Super Bowl before he got there. And, uh, you know, never. And, and now they're, you know, they've won more, I think, than any other NFL team. And, you know, they are uh, they are really a creation of Lambert's tenacious style and his aggressive play and his relentlessness. Jack Lambert was a player who had an understanding of something that all these these elite captains knew to some extent, but I think he was probably the best example of it. They understood the power of nonverbal communication, of just gestures. They understood that there were moments where they needed to do something in full view of their teammates that would show their level of commitment and passion because that would transfer it to them and allow them to play harder. And Jack Lambert was famous, of course, for, uh, you know, he lost a couple teeth in high school playing pickup basketball and he uh, had a prosthetic denture that he wore in public, but he would take it off on the field so that he had a toothless, you know, mouth and he, and he would scare people. So that was part of it. But my favorite Jack Lambert story that I think shows you uh, the genius of his leadership was that they were playing a game, I believe, in 1976, and they had won the Super Bowl, but they started one and four. 
people had written them off, like it's over for the Steelers, and they had to win this game. They had to beat the Bengals, and he wound up playing a, probably the finest game of his career in terms of the number of tackles. He recovered fumbles. He basically accounted for most of his team's points single-handedly. So it was an incredible game. But now in the middle of this game, he had uh, came into the game. He had a cut on his hand, and he bandaged it up, and you know he went out there. And, of course, the bandages failed, and the blood starts spurting out. It was all over his uniform and his pants. I mean, it was a mess. I tracked down one of the trainers and I asked him, why didn't you know you just rewrap that bandage when he came off the field or change his uniform at halftime or something? And he said, you don't understand. He's like, Jack Lambert loved having blood on his uniform. I mean, he understood how powerful that message was and how, uh, how much harder it made his teammates play and how much it intimidated his opponents. And uh, he, he did that on purpose. And Jack Lambert did all kinds of things that might seem crazy or unhinged. But when you listen to him talk about it, I mean, he always says, look, these were calculated acts. These were things that I did, uh, you know, on purpose because I understood the power that they would have and I understood the effect they would have on the team. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that that team was so good and so consistently great uh, and won four Super Bowls in six years, which no team has ever done. And what great storytelling. And when we come back, the final segment with Sam Walker, more stories to come author of the captain class this is our american stories back with our final segment of our conversation with Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal sports section and author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. It's a terrific read. Go to Amazon.com and order it. You won't be disappointed. I had to read something to you, Sam, from quarterback John Elway. Of course, he played at Denver. And this was him talking about Jack Lambert. And by the way, he was a rookie. And here's what he wrote. Lambert had no teeth. He was slobbering all over himself, and I'm thinking, you can have your money back. Just get me out of here. Let me go be an accountant. I can't tell you how badly I wanted it out of there. And so you were talking about all of this nonverbal communication. My goodness, it didn't just fire up his team. It scared the heck out of the opponents. Talk about courage and how captains develop it. You know, a lot of it comes from emotional control. And, you know, we don't think of Jack Lambert as being someone who was uh, emotionally controlled. But like all of these great athletes, you know, he was not someone who got in trouble off the field. I mean, he was not someone who got in a lot of brawls. And none of these captains, they were usually very quiet. Off the field, Jack Lambert was really kind of an introverted, private person. I mean, he was a big reader. And, you know, on road trips, he would he would often just sit in his room reading a book. I mean, he wasn't an outsized character. That aggression that he had on the field didn't translate to the rest of his life. And that was something I saw with all of these athletes. And, you know, I think it's a way of redefining courage because, you know, he poured everything into football and, and all of his aggression, all of his passion, everything. You know, he would, he would put it all out on the field. And, you know, when he wasn't there, he had this incredible ability to, to shut it off and to... 
kind of return to normal and, and to, to, to be a quieter person. And, you know, that's a form of courage that we don't really understand. It's an ability to control your emotions. You know, being able to do that, you know, it's not courage in the sense of, of you know, running up the hill in a, in, a, in a rain of bullets in some big military battle, but it's a different sort of courage that I think is very contagious because I think people see you dealing with your emotions that way, being able to control them, being able to target them toward objectives. And I think uh, it gives everyone a better understanding of, of how to operate in a team environment and, and what courage really is. Let's talk about Tom Brady at the University of Michigan, where he played as a collegian. No one could have imagined what would have been in store for him as an NFL player. He was a sixth-round draft pick and had trouble keeping his starting job in college. No, he lost it. I mean, he lost it. To Drew Henson, who was, you know, uh, supposed to be the next great, you know, quarterback, the second coming of, you know, Joe Montana. Yeah, no, he went through a lot. And, you know, um, the fact that he even got on the field was a fluke because he only got to play because of a serious injury to Drew Bledsoe. And it really shows you, you know, that, that it's very easy sometimes to not look inside someone. I mean, I think he had great talent, physical talent, and, you know, we'd seen many flashes of that at Michigan, but... What was really lurking inside him was incredible elite leadership ability and, you know, also great tactical mind and all those things that, you know, I think scouts too often dismiss. Brady was tough because, you know, Brady's accomplishments, I know everyone loves to talk about Brady and the greatness of the Patriots, but, you know, until I believe this season when they made another Super Bowl and and won eight, eight straight AFC championship games, you know, their record was very similar to the 49ers in that long stretch where they were very dominant. So same number of Super Bowls, roughly the same winning percentage. So I had a very hard time saying that either one of those teams was unique. So initially, for the hardcover, I didn't put the Patriots in. But later on, I, after they made that Super Bowl, I decided to put them in because I thought their record had clearly outpaced the 49ers. But the thing about Brady that stands out to me the most beyond his leadership qualities is his relationship with his coach. And that is something that is fascinating to me. And I said that coaches weren't the, the important factor, the crucial factor, and I don't think they are. But what's really important in these great teams with coaches is that they have a partnership with their captain. And I saw this over and over again. It wasn't a boss-employee kind of relationship. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady had this relationship that was unusual. It was like the relationship Tim Duncan had with Greg Popovich, too. It was very affectionate and there's a lot of, of love between them, but they knew how to fight and they would fight all the time. They would come into conflict about tactics. It was never personal. It was always about how the team was playing. You know, and Belichick would, would go to team meetings and rip Brady in front of everyone for mistakes that he made. And Brady would take it and it would tell everyone that no one's above the team. But, you know, if Tom Brady didn't like the Super Bowl playbook that he was given, he would tell him to rip it up and start over. So, that partnership, I think, was really underrated. And if you remember, that first season Tom Brady came, he was a six-round draft pick no one thought was uh, anything. And Bill Belichick was a guy who got fired at Cleveland that no one thought had the chops to be a head coach. And together, they became two of the legends in football. But I don't think you can separate them. I don't think it was something they could have achieved individually. I think that partnership and their ability to work together was so important. And I think the message for coaches and people, managers and people who are trying to assemble teams with this kind of leadership model is that 
you got to pick someone to lead that team that you can really partner with and that you respect and that you can uh, really treat as a peer. I think that's true. And there was a balance of power you wrote about and a mutual respect and that fighting wasn't a bad thing. And you equate the great captains and coaches to married couples. I was lucky to see a great marriage. My mom and dad would fight like cats and dogs and it was over right after the fight. And then I'd see them loving each other. And then when they disagreed, they'd go at it. And it was respect for each other. And they taught me how to fight which is a wonderful thing. People who can disagree and then carry on, you're giving them the greatest gift in the world. It's true. It's so underrated. And it's funny because especially in sports, there's this weird sense that conflict is bad. You know, there, there's, there are certain players, and the, and the thing about these captains was they were not easy to manage. I mean, they would push back on anything they didn't think was in the best interest of the team, whether it was something big or small. They would push back against the coaches, but they would push back against their teammates as well. They were willing to stand apart. And you talk about courage, and you know that's an underrated form of courage. It's the ability to just dissent from the group. And science has actually shown that, that there is a, an element of physical discomfort that comes with standing apart. So it's something that's not easy to do. And yet it's so crucial. You know, all the, the studies that have been done of team performance show that teams that really work together in, in close ways, as they do in sports, a certain level of conflict is essential. But there's a different kind of conflict. There's two kinds, really. There's a, a kind of conflict they call task conflict, which is really about an argument about process, about how the team is doing something or how they should do something. And there's another form of conflict, which is personal conflict. This is when the source of the conflict is really just, I don't like you. And there's a real difference. Now, all these captains, whenever they introduced conflict in their teams, they made a huge point to make clear that it wasn't personal. They never singled out individuals. They never blamed any one person. It was always about the collective, and it was always about the task and the process. And it's a huge difference. It's so easy to mistake those two things and look at someone who is – creating conflict uh, as a bad thing when you're not really necessarily looking at why they're doing it or how they're doing it. And that was one of the real secrets I feel like I uncovered, something I had no idea about until I really took a hard look at it. Sam, you wrote something fascinating about all of these captains, that they were more like jazz musicians than conductors, and that they freely improvised on and off the court to get the job done. It was one of the things that I had never considered when I think about teams, but there was a famous researcher named Richard Hackman, who was a Harvard psychologist who passed away a few years ago. He spent all of his career embedded with performance teams, teams that do things in real time, whether airplane cockpit crews or emergency room units or even symphony orchestras. And he would watch the way leadership worked. And what he discovered was so exactly parallel to what I found in these teams, which is that the leader's charisma and talent did not matter. It just wasn't a factor. They could have it, they could not have it. It didn't really make a difference. All that mattered, in fact, in terms of leadership inside a group is that every single important function of leadership gets done. That's it. You know, anything that needs to be done in order to help the team from a leadership perspective, as long as someone does it, it doesn't even have to be the leader. It could be somebody else. And on these great teams, what you saw was that these captains had established themselves as the person who would do anything. If there's a burning building that no one else wants to go into, they're going to go into it. And once that's established, then basically everyone on the team, whether a superstar or a bench player, 
understands that they're free to do their jobs and focus on what they need to do. And if they want to contribute to leadership, they can. They can do it the ways they want to. They can do the things that they're good at, whether it's mentorship or you know, being the spark plug or being a sheriff or doing something else to help the team as a group. And you start to see this happening, this beautiful symphony that starts where everyone does what they're good at and everyone pitches in and every single function of leadership gets taken care of. And a great leader will never feel territorial, will never feel unhappy that someone is doing a leadership function because, frankly, it's a hard job. Being a great leader, you know, and sustaining excellence is incredibly taxing and difficult. And anyone who's doing it the right way will be so happy to have help and assistance from others. Well, and this book will help others and assist them, too. We've been talking to Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section and author of The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. Pick it up on Amazon. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. And Sam, thanks so much for doing this. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, Five Best Stories Each Week. They come in audio form and in print form. And again, all you have to do is give us your email address. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Captain Class, Sam Walker's latest. This is Our American Stories.